0: Hello and welcome to Maritime Ireland, the only radio programme and podcast about Ireland's marine sphere. Reporting on maritime development, culture, history and tradition. Tom McSweeney here and we start this month in the underwater world. Interest in diving is rapidly increasing. There's also snorkelling, there's even underwater rugby and hockey. And plans for a centre of excellence in Kilkee and a water sports campus in Laoghaire. Exciting times for seeing Ireland under the waves. The national governing body is Diving Ireland, founded in 1963 to organise and promote diving, scuba and snorkelling. It has grown to over 63 clubs around the country, and its president is Kiron Cassan.
1: Yeah, it's growing now. Um, it is something which we believe there's a lot more potential in, especially when you look beyond scuba into snorkelling and also free diving and other sports like underwater hockey. So that whole connection with the underwater environment is something which we believe there's huge potential to grow. And it is part of our strategy to do that, working with other organizations like Sailing Ireland, like Swim Ireland, uh, our sports council, and the local sports Partnership. So we think there's a lot of potential for growth. And we're, um, within our own resources, trying to drive that forward over the next three years.
0: What... Is the real attraction underwater? Now, I'm fascinated. As a sailor, I like being underwater. I'm not sure about being underwater. But there are vast attractions. What brought you into it, Ciarán?
1: Being from the only county that doesn't touch a county that touches the sea, it was a bit of a a journey for me. But I think it's one of those um, places that really is open for exploration. And what people often ask me about Ireland they say, you know, well, why, why would you dive in Ireland? And I've dived all, all over the world. But the west coast of Ireland is probably one of the most stunning places to dive. And it is now something which, uh, through photography and through a lot of very um, great television work, is being showcased to the world. And there were two very good series on RTE over the last seven or eight years produced by Ken O'Sullivan in West Clare, one on Ireland's deep Atlantic and the other one which was about the North Atlantic and it really showcased the colour, the vibrancy, the life that is in Irish waters and it's something which so few people take the time to explore.
0: Indeed and your Subsea magazine which carries photography of those is stunning. There are amazing things to see underwater around the Irish coast.
1: Yeah and, and the colour, people often Get attracted, you know, by the beauty that they see in warmer waters, where you've got greater sunlight. But you have as much vibrancy in Irish waters. You just have to bring a torch, and torches have become a lot uh, less expensive. And if you light it up, the colours, the pinks, the blues. There's a wonderful dive down off Kilkean West Clare called the Diamond Rocks, and it is just jewel anemone enemy on cliff faces that are just the most amazing sights to see. And I think it's a privilege as a diver to be able to see them and I think it's something which snorkelers and as, as equipment has got cheaper in terms of wetsuits and and basic equipment like that. It's really opened it up for people and we're trying to encourage people to go out and
0: explore. So how do people become involved in diving if they want to, Kira and I note that your organisation is very careful, obviously, about the safety and the training needed.
1: Safety is paramount, but I would say to people that Diving is, is something which is very accessible, but snorkeling is even more accessible. And like a mask and a snorkel, good mask and snorkel, are very cheap to, to provide. And we've, we've engaged with youth groups and others to introduce people to snorkeling. And it's something that I think one of the benefits of COVID is people went out and explored the outdoors and start to engage in sea swimming and, and things like that in a way that hadn't been there before. And snorkeling is often the route in and then diving after that. The training is provided through our network of clubs and they're available on our website, um, diving.ie. And we've, we've really worked to try and structure our training pathways to enable people to start that journey and work all the way up to instructor level. And we're very lucky to have a committed cohort of instructors across the country who work on a voluntary basis week in, week out, training people and passing on the love of the underwater world that they have.
0: And there are clubs in huge number of locations around the coast.
1: There's a club close to everybody. So if you go onto our website, you'll find information about those clubs. And they are, um, one of the things that we have benefited from is the investment in sport, which has increased over the last 10 years. So there is equipment available through universities and through our clubs. And it's something that we're trying to strategically build. We're involved in a project with Irish sailing in relation to the establishment of a natural and national water sports campus in Dunleary. And we're also in discussions with our club in Kilkee and partners down there about the possibility of a regional centre of excellence in Kilkee because West Clare is one of the jewels in Irish diving. So we're, we're trying to develop the infrastructure at the same time as reach out to people, especially younger people and ask them to consider this as an option in their portfolio of
0: sports. Finally, Kieron, and uh, listeners will be intrigued by it. You mentioned underwater hockey.
1: Yeah, there's underwater hockey and there's underwater rugby and another sport which is going growing in popularity here, which is free diving. And there's a very fine film on documentary on Netflix, I think at the moment, called "The Last Breath" about free diving, which profiles some Irish people are involved in it. But underwater hockey has been there for a number of years, played by a lot of universities, and it's it's hockey. But with a mask and snorkel, a tough sport. I've only tried it on a few occasions myself. But it is also something which is played competitively internationally. And some of these sports are now being looked at in the context of the Olympics. So there's lots to do underwater.
0: Kiron Cassan, President of Diving Ireland. And what great descriptions of Ireland underwater, which you can see in their beautiful colour quarterly magazine, Subsea. Amazing photographs of life under the waves. In his working life, Kiron was appointed earlier this year as Ireland's Director of Film Classification. He referred in the interview there to being from a county of which no part touches the sea. He's from County Leash. And he's also my interviewee in my monthly feature on the August edition of The Marine Times. The website for Diving Ireland is www.diving.ie. That's diving.ie. The Minister for the Environment has urged local communities and various groups involved in existing maritime activities, including fishing and seafood production, throughout the South Coast to engage in a public participation which his department has launched for the South Coast designated area. That covers about 8,600 square kilometres along the coastlines of Wexford, Waterford and Cork, intended for offshore wind development. It's open for eight weeks until September 26, and meetings are to be arranged in coastal communities. There's also an online survey. Go to gov.ie stroke southcoastdmap for more information. That's gov.ie forward southcoastdmap. And that brings us to the issue of pressure on the marine space, which is increasing, and if not dealt with carefully, could cause a lot of controversy and difficulty. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group is warning about this and about false information being put onto social media. It says that coastal communities and the fishing industry must be central to decision-making about offshore wind farms and marine protected
2: areas. Padraig Cooley, based in West
0: Cork, is the group's sightings
2: officer. Ireland's coastal waters are facing unprecedented marine spatial planning pressures, including offshore renewable energy and marine protected areas, leading to a real sense of spatial squeeze. These emerging policy areas will define not only how people use those waters over the coming decades, but our relationship with the sea. How we establish which areas to use for what projects remains to be seen, but it is clear that to be effective coastal communities, and especially fishers, will need to be at the heart of the decision-making process. Decision-making and policy development are a combination of many factors, including social and economic considerations, traditions from the past, and the use of the best available scientific advice. All of which shape our vision for coastal communities into the future. It has long been acknowledged that evidence-based decision-making is more acceptable and inclusive, especially all the evidence is presented to stakeholders. This reduces the risk of important decisions being based on opinions, be they personal or organisational. At present, we are running the risk of these opinions taking precedence over evidence-based decision-making space. Separating fact from opinions often makes it impossible to know where the truth really lies. When personal opinions are delivered on social media platforms, the gap between fact and fiction becomes increasingly blurred. The designations of MPAs and the construction of offshore wind farms are going to happen. This is not debatable. They are in the programme for government and essential for our sustainable futures. What is, however, debatable is how we're going to approach the designation and management of those areas and how are those most affected going to be consulted, listened to and brought into the process. Deliberate attempts to spread confusion is not only unhelpful, it is mischievous and increasingly dangerous. Who do people trust? Where does one go to get objective information without hidden agendas? This is not an issue peculiar to Ireland. With a relatively low population and small coastal communities in a small country like Ireland, respectful consultation and discourse should be possible, if we so choose. We all know each other. We can stand up and demand that evidence-based decisions are made with the available information shared respectfully amongst all parties. Those doing their best to provide that same evidence find themselves increasingly under fire from actors with hidden agendas. This is deeply disrespectful to all and especially those whose lives will be most changed by the new reality which will have profound impacts on people their businesses and our coastal communities.
0: Padre Cooley and a sombre warning which needs to be noted from the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. Its recently appointed Marine Policy Officer Dr. Stephen Comerford has noted that one of the effects of climate change on the south coast appears to be that humpback whales are choosing the northwest rather than Cork and Kerry. He says that the humpback whales, so long a feature of summer, in Cork and Kerry, didn't come this year. Instead, they are far to the north of Mayo, Sligo and Donegal and reduced in numbers. The IWDG will hold its annual Whale Watch Day at headlands around the coast on Saturday, August 19, between 2 and 4pm. Full details are on its website www.iwdg.ie That's iwdg.ie on the 14th of October 1918, during World War I, the flagship of the Dundalk and Neury Steam Packet Company, the SS Dundalk, was torpedoed and sunk by a German submarine, the same one which the ship had defied and frustrated in previous attacks. Twenty lives were lost, only twelve aboard survived. The shipwreck lies 25 miles south of the Isle of Man, 62 metres down on the seabed. The ship's bell was found by technical diver Rick Waring on the 7th of July 2019 on a dive organised by Discover Diving based in Port St. Mary, Isle of Man, but a lift bag taking it to the surface failed and it fell back to the seabed. It was later recovered by a dive team of Steve Cowley, Michelle Haywood and Catherine Fowler and it has been returned to Dundalk. This is the story of the attack on the SS Dundalk, Told in a documentary made by Doc
3: FM. A chill October wind swept across the moonlit deck of the SS Dundalk as she steamed steadily for home, oblivious to the torpedo which raced towards her with unerring accuracy. The torpedo smashed into the doomed vessel amidships violently splitting the ship asunder as the savage explosion erupted into the night sky, illuminating with cruel clarity the hellishness of the brutal scene. With grim military efficiency, the German U-boat commander surveyed the torpedo's mangled aftermath of angry flames and twisted metal from the conning tower of his surfaced sub, ignoring the screams of the injured survivors who fought to stay alive. Content with his bloody work, the U-boat captain ordered his sub to dive, stealing a final glance at the remains of the tenacious Irish ship which had evaded him for the very last time. The SS Dundalk
0: was the flagship of the Dundalk and Newry Steam Packet Company, traded to Liverpool and had been attacked previously in December of the year before 1917 when 52 shells were fired at her by a German submarine She survived, led by her master Captain Hugh O'Neill
3: Captain O'Neill called for full steam ahead and with a zigzagging manoeuvre the canny Irishman brought his ship into the safety zone off the Isle of Man escaping his German aggressor. The U-boat had fired over 50 shells, but only one was on target, and it had utterly demolished one of the lightboats on deck. The SS Dundalk had been fitted with a deck gun and bravely returned fire, but the shots fell short of the submarine. It was certainly due largely to Captain O'Neill's tenacity and courage that the Dundalk survived to sail another day. So skillful was his seamanship that only the one enemy shell managed to land on target. In recognition of Captain O'Neill's valiant efforts, both he, his officers and his crew received testimonials and reward for preventing the death of their passengers and the destruction of their ship.
0: On the night of 14th of October, when the SS Dundalk was not so lucky, That happened and Charlie McCarthy, who is chairman of the Dundalk Commemoration Committee, recalled it on the Dundalk FM documentary and how a flu epidemic at the time meant that some of the scheduled crew could not sail on the fateful voyage and they were replaced by others.
4: She was uh, 794 tonnes, 72 metres long and she was built for the Dundalk and Uri Steam Packet Company Limited of Dundalk and Uri. That's where she traded from most of her life from Dundalk to Liverpool. Mostly livestock and passengers. She would carry small amounts of cargo. The, all the, the Dundalk and Uri ships carried uh, livestock. Uh, they carried the cattle and sheep and stuff to Birkenhead uh, and then they would go over to Liverpool with the cargo and the uh, passengers' and cargo. That was the standard. Mm. And all the return trip, what would it be taken back from the UK? foodstuffs mostly, and and, uh, small amounts of coal and and, uh, that was mainly what it was. was. Dundalk was also the the, the hub of the railway system for the whole north east of Ireland and uh, most of the coal for the railway system came in through Dundalk at that time. The coal went as far as Ballyshannon and and into Monaghan, Cavan and South Armagh from Dundalk. She was mostly uh, crewed by uh, Dundalk people. Yeah, all her crew, more or less, were Dundalk or Newry, but mostly Dundalk. At that time, there was a lot of illness. I think, was it the flu that was going about at that time that um, knocked out a few of the crew? Yeah, there were were terrible uh, flus in those days, and there was an epidemic at that time. And it had hit the crew in, in a big way, because a lot of them, I think, were... Uh, I felt affected by it and were, that happened a few of the crew members I think that they were switched with that's right it was, I think there was three, three crew members in the night it was, it was their first time
0: The tragic story of the SS Dundalk told in Dundalk FM's documentary Marie Agnew is Secretary of the SS Dundalk Committee which in 2018 commemorated the centenary of the sinking and has worked on the return of the bell, which is now on display in the Louth County Museum at Jocelyn Street in the town. Returning there was a very emotional occasion, as the tragedy is a strong part of the town's maritime history and very close still to the memories of the families of those involved in the tragedy.
5: Back in 2018, we had organised a trip to the Isle of Man. We met with relatives of those who had assisted in the rescue at the time of the sinking. So we went over to the Isle of Man to meet those relatives and we also stopped over the wreck site. Then we had the actual memorial itself and then we erected a memorial on the Navy bank just here in Dundalk. So that where it faces. It would have been where the ship had passed by on its final voyage.
0: Why is it so important to Dundalk to commemorate this particular ship?
5: The reason why it's so important is because we have a huge amount of relatives still residing in the town. And these are grandchildren and great-grandchildren and grandnieces and nephews of those people. You know, in particular, Captain Hugh O'Neill's grandson lives here in Dundalk, Hugh O'Neill. So you're not talking about a number of generations back. The actual story is really close to those people's hearts. They wanted to remember and bring back the story to the, the newer generations. It was particularly overshadowed at the time by the thinking of the, the Leinster, which was a couple of days earlier. And there was a huge loss of life on that. So the story was never really brought to fore.
0: So getting the bell back into the museum was obviously a huge emotional occasion as well.
5: Well, following all the commemorations of 2018 and how much we had done, to have the bell back in the town is really like closure for the families. It's on display in the museum. Also on display is a porcelain basin that was retrieved from the wreck site by the dive team in perfect condition.
0: It's a very personal thing, obviously, from what you described there, Mari, because so many people with memories of that time, are still in the town, as you say?
5: Very, very personal. When the dive team, which it's they are the Isle of Man dive team, um, their names are Steve Crowley, uh, Michelle Hayward and Catherine Fowler. They were the three people that actually brought the bell to the surface. So when they brought the bell back to the town, they didn't expect anybody really to be there. So you can imagine they surprise when the place was full and all of these people there were relatives of those that were lost or even those that survived the sinking of the ship.
0: Mary Agnew and the return of the ship's bell of the SS Dundalk to the town. In the sailing world, there's been a lot of changes at the headquarters of the National Sailing Authority Sailing Ireland in Dulera, with several members of staff resigning. In more positive news, the Royal Ocean Racing Club of the UK has announced the return of the Admiral's Cup, which is regarded as the unofficial World Cup of offshore yacht racing. That'll be in 2025, after an absence of 22 years. The Irish Cruiser Racing Association is considering an Irish entry. The state agency for 74,000 kilometres of rivers and streams, 128,000 lake hectares and coastline jurisdiction of 12 nautical miles says in its annual wild salmon and sea trout report that commercial fishermen were reduced to 15% of the national salmon catch last year when 26,715 fish were landed from Irish rivers. That's down from 21% in 21 Recreational anglers increased their catch to 85% from 79% caught in 2021. Mayo, Cork, Kerry and Galway rivers accounted for 53% of the catches. While the war in Ukraine rages on, there was a time when Irish troops fought in Crimea and were carried there in ships from the port of Cork, leaving under the sign of a king and a dragon. A story which Anton O'Callaghan now recounts.
6: Statio Benefida Carnis, a safe haven for ships. That's the Cork motto. But how many people realise that Cork is also safe from dragons? Well, at the eastern end of the River Lees North Channel on Penrose Quay stands Penrose House, on top of which is a statue of Saint George mounted on his steed in the act of slaying a dragon and ready to face any other that may attempt to enter the city from the east to terrorise the citizens. Historically, From the 14th century, English soldiers going into battle were placed under the protection of St George. Each wore an emblem of the saint and eventually his cross, red on a white background, formed part of the Union Jack flag of Great Britain. Penrose House dates to the 1820s and was for many years the headquarters of the St George Steam Packet Company, subsequently the City of Cork Steam Packet Company. For decades, this was one place of departure for passengers and goods that were part of the lifeblood of the Port of Cork. During the 1850s, it was from Penrose Quay that many troops departed for that troubled area of Europe far to the east, Crimea. With St George mounted above the steam packet offices, one can imagine that departing troops felt a sense of security at the sight of their patron protector as they left for war. On Thursday the 14th of December 1854, five companies of the 72nd Highlanders arrived by train from Buttevant, marched to Penrose Quay and boarded the river steamers Prince and Royal Alice to bring them to ships at Queenstown. Huge crowds gathered and as the troops made their way aboard, another steamer, the Princess, fully laden with troops of the 91st Regiment, passed and there was great cheering and handkerchief waving as the soldiers greeted each other. All the while, the regimental band played a series of Scottish airs. There was a carnival atmosphere, but some on the quayside wept openly, knowing that many of these young men would never again see the waters of the lee. For them, St George's raised arm was a farewell gesture to those journeying to the east and eternity. Cork was a thriving port from the middle of the 18th century, being a world centre for butter exports as well as livestock, tanning products and other cargoes. To the quayside here also, as the 19th century advanced, came imports of timber, luxury goods and the coal that kept the railways and businesses of the area operating. Some of the ships operating were built in Cork at Pike's Yard in Water Street, among them the SS Gannet, Pelican, Cormorant. The SS Ibis was lost at sea in December 1865 at Ballycronine Bay, not far from Ballycotton, with the loss of three crew members. Other famous ship names of the company are well remembered in the maritime lore of Cork. The Sirius, first steamer to cross the Atlantic in 1838 and lost in Ballycotton Bay in 1847. From 1896, a number of ships carried the name Innisfallon, which during the 1950s and the 1960s carried thousands of emigrants from this quayside. The company suffered heavily during the First World War, including the loss of the first Innisfallon, which had been built in 1896, ...to a German U-boat on the 23rd of May 1918. War again impacted in November 1940... ...when the SS Ardmore set sail from Penrose Quay bound for Fishguard... ...a journey she never completed. On that fateful night she had a crew of 24 souls... ...16 of them from the city of Cork. She was sighted off Ballycotton at 10.20pm... ...her last sighting. Over the following days wreckage was washed up on the Welsh coast... In December, the bodies of Captain Thomas Ford, Seaman Frank O'Shea and Cattleman Michael Raymond were recovered on the Pembrokeshire coast. No other bodies were ever recovered. Back in Cork, the offices of the steamship company were visited daily by distraught relatives seeking any information on their missing loved ones. Much later, a postman walking on a strand not far from Wexford Harbour found a bottle with a scribbled note inside. It simply said, Goodbye to all at home, ship sinking fast. Ford.
0: Anton O'Callaghan and the story of Corkport, Irish troops going to fight in Crimea, and a fateful note found in the sea. Anton is the author of Read All About It the story of sculptures and monuments in Cork City and several other books about the history of Leeside. And so we end this edition of Maritime Ireland, sound production by Justin Marr. The programme website is at maritimeirelandradioshow.ie That's maritimeirelandradioshow.ie The email is Maritime at gmail.com That's Maritime at gmail.com And I'd love to hear your views and comments on Maritime Matters. Phone and text 0872 555 That's 0872 555 7 You'll also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. With the usual wish of fair sailing. Thank you for listening and being part of the maritime community with Maritime Ireland.